You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Reverse Rat looks like a state-run espionage tool active in South and Central Asia. The U.S. Justice Department seizes 33 sites run by media aligned with the Iranian government. Poland offers more clarity on a cyber espionage campaign it attributes to Russia. An intercept and inspection company's executives are indicted for complicity with torture. NSA opens a cybersecurity collaboration center for industry. Joe Kerrigan examines Apple's push to replace passwords. Our guest is Shazad Merchant from Gigamon with a breakdown on security guidelines for hybrid cloud programs. And the FSB says it hopes for reciprocity. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, June 23rd, 2021. Lumen's Black Lotus Labs have described a new Trojan they're calling Reverse Rat. The malware is deployed in cyber espionage operations against government and energy sector targets in South and Central Asia. Its infrastructure is hosted in Pakistan, and Black Lotus Labs tentatively attributes the campaign to Pakistan's government. Reverse RAT is regarded as unusually evasive with low detection rates by monitoring software. Lumen describes the Trojans' evasion techniques as including use of compromised domains in the same country as the targeted entity to host their malicious files, highly targeted victim selection after the initial compromise, repurposed open-source code, in-memory components used for initial access, and modification of registry keys to covertly maintain persistence on the target device. How the first stage of the attack is delivered isn't entirely clear. It involves delivering malicious URLs that point to compromised sites— and Lumen conjectures that the baited documents probably arrive through some form of phishing or smishing. The fish bait is varied, but documents alluding to events or organizations in India have been common. Lumen has also seen COVID-19 fish bait and topics likely to be of interest to people working in the energy sector. Most of the victims were in India, with a smaller set of targets in Afghanistan— Lumen assesses the reverse rat operators as not as sophisticated as the most skilled state-sponsored actors, but the threat actor is by no means contemptible, and the researchers think they bear watching. The U.S. Justice Department yesterday seized 33 websites used by the Iranian Islamic Radio and Television Union and three more run by the Kitab Hezbollah, 
Aligned with the Iranian government, the media outlets were operating in violation of U.S. sanctions against designated terrorist groups. The domains justice seized were owned by a U.S. corporation. Other sites based abroad were beyond the scope of the warrants the feds executed. The immediate offense, note, is sanctions violations, not engagement in propaganda or disinformation. Polish authorities have offered more details on the cyber attacks their country has sustained over recent months. They attribute the campaign to UNC-1151, a threat actor associated with Russian intelligence services and generally regarded as responsible for the Ghostwriter campaign. According to The Hill, Polish intelligence services regard the campaign as part of a larger effort aimed at destabilizing Central European governments. A spokesperson for the Polish Minister Coordinator of Special Services said yesterday, quote, The findings of the Internal Security Agency and the Military Counterintelligence Service show that the UNC-1151 group is behind the recent hacker attacks that hit Poland. The secret services have reliable information at their disposal, which links this group with the activities of the Russian secret services, end quote. The attacks involve the compromise of email accounts, The Washington Post puts the tally of affected accounts at more than 4,300, at least 100 of which belong to current or former Polish government officials. Klopp is down, but not out, apparently. Motherboard says the Klopp gang, that's C, numeral 1, numeral 0, letter P, Klopp, has resurfaced after some of its principals were arrested in Ukraine last week. Other members of the gang have made a reappearance on their dark website, posting what they claim is information stolen from some recent victims. The gangsters aren't answering their email, or anyway, they're not responding to the Hey, what's up? motherboard sent them, but they appear to be signaling that they're not out of the picture yet. Still, we can hope, right? Reuters reports that NSA has opened a cybersecurity collaboration center. The new center aspires to closer ties with U.S. companies, It's hoped that sharing information on attacks will be mutually beneficial, especially as companies that operate portions of critical infrastructure increasingly come under attack. The head of Russia's FSB says Russia intends to work together to hunt down cybercriminals. Reuters says the FSB hopes for reciprocity from the U.S. The proof, of course, will be, as they say, in the pudding— Russia has always offered its cooperation in investigating cybercrime and other affronts, but their prospective partners have tended to regard the gift as Greek, like that big horse left behind on the beach outside the walls of Troy. We shall see. Security Week reports that French authorities have indicted four former and current executives of Nexa Technology, an intercept company formerly known as Amasis, on charges of complicity with torture carried out by Egypt and the Libyan regime of the late Muammar Gaddafi. The charges are complicity in acts of torture and complicity in acts of torture and forced disappearances. Amasis had sold deep packet inspection tools to Colonel Gaddafi's Libya, and the charges allege that the Libyan government used it for the surveillance and arrest of opposition figures who were subsequently tortured. After its rebranding as Nexa, the company is accused of selling a version of Amasis's Cerebro software capable of real-time message and call tracing to the Egyptian government, which is alleged to have used it in a similarly repressive fashion. The problem lies in the selection of customer, 
Whatever one thinks of the possibility that surveillance tools can be used legitimately and legally, to whom they're sold matters a great deal. It's difficult to say that their abuse by Gaddafi was unforeseeable by a reasonably well-informed person. And finally, the market research telecast has an account of the Nephilim ransomware. It's the computer virus that robs but the rich, the headline says. But when you read further, you'll realize that their motives aren't ones of altruistic restraint, still less any kind of preferential option for the poor. They're more Willie Sutton than Robin Hood, more Depression-era Philadelphia than Sherwood Forest. Nephilim goes after rich organizations because that's where the money is. It's a self-interested preferential option for a big illicit payday. If their name is to be taken as an allusion to the Nephilim of Genesis and Numbers, do recall that those Nephilim, whether giants or fallen angels, weren't exactly positive role models. So whether it's the happy land of Canaan or the Corn Exchange Bank and Trust Company, the giants are in for the big score. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. The journey many organizations are taking toward the cloud can include stops along the way, mixing various elements from different suppliers. Shazad Merchant is Chief Technology Officer at Gigamon, and he shares insights on the elements he sees leading to success in hybrid cloud deployments. Today, uh, cloud is foremost on people's mind. Uh, almost uh, every CIO, every CISO you talk to uh, has a mandate to move to the cloud. And, and that typically means uh, one of three things. The first is to migrate towards a private cloud infrastructure, uh, where they're essentially hosting um, uh, their own applications in a private cloud environment in their own data center. 
or it can mean moving to infrastructure as a service, in other words, AWS, Azure, uh, GCP, or it can mean uh, moving towards a SaaS-first model, right? Which is you move towards software as a service first, and what you cannot satisfy with the SaaS model, then you uh, leverage either uh, infrastructure as a service or you leverage a private cloud infrastructure. Uh, but I think almost any company you speak to today is well on their journey towards this framework and this model. Uh, the degree to which they have made uh, the transition varies, but almost every company is is on this journey. Is it safe to say that talking about hybrid cloud, I mean, that that covers a broad spectrum of possibilities? It absolutely does, right? Uh, it, it absolutely does. It covers the spectrum of uh, a hybrid pers- from the perspective of uh, your own private cloud and the public cloud, but it also covers a spectrum of having multiple public cloud providers. You could have your applications hosted in AWS, you could have some applications hosted in Azure, some in GCP, and that's a different aspect of hybrid cloud as well, right? And so maybe you can talk about that as multi-cloud, but really hybrid covers all of those uh, spectrums. And, and from your perspective, what sort of things are you and your team tracking in, store, in, in terms of some of the specific challenges that folks are facing? Yeah, and this is, this is a really important conversation uh, because one of the biggest challenges we see today in that customer journey is, is around security. And the challenge really stems from one key uh, problem, and that is that in almost every cloud journey today, uh, agility is trumping security. In other words, how quickly can I move to the cloud? How quickly can I deploy my applications and get them up and running in the cloud is trumping uh, the security requirements of running those applications in the cloud. And, And that's a big challenge today because what is happening is people are forgetting the security lessons of the last 20 years and I'm moving at a pretty uh, quick pace. And in, in the journey, we are resulting with a situation where we have significant uh, gaps in the security posture of many of these uh, companies. Is, does it have to be an either-or situation? I mean, is, is it possible to move, uh, you know, to be both nimble and secure? It absolutely is. So that's, that is the crux of this, right? And so the reason why agility is trumping security is because when we sit and think about the cloud journey, cloud journey is typically driven by the persona of DevOps. um, And DevOps run at a certain pace, but they've not come from an infosec background. And in many cases, they don't know or truly understand the risks. And on the other hand, infosec teams have not come from a developer mindset and don't understand DevOps programmability and automation. So that's the real problem. And, And I do think that there is a happy medium where the infosec teams and the DevOps teams uh, can actually work together uh, and, and, and accomplish both security and agility. In fact, you know, I like to equate uh, security as having brakes on a car. If you have brakes on your car, you can actually move pretty fast. If your car doesn't have brakes, you're going to be very hesitant to move uh, very quickly. And so I think security is essentially uh, the same paradigm. And so if you can bring the two together and have your DevOps teams and the InfoSec teams work hand in hand, I think you will have a happy medium where you can be pretty agile, you can move quickly, but you don't have to give up on the learnings of the last 20 years from an InfoSec perspective. Are there any common things you see when you have those teams who have successfully integrated, when you see those teams who are working together, um, are there any things that they have in common, elements that, that, that lead to their success? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think, first of all, you know, everybody is incented to make sure that your applications, your deployments are secure, right? Uh, 
if you run very quickly, but you leave uh, holes in your security, that will come back and bite you and it will slow future deployments out there, right? So, so the common ground there is to make sure that uh, while you're deploying your applications quickly, uh, the security of them uh, is not forgotten. And the, the good thing over here is that we have learned a lot of things in the last decade, the last two decades. Defense in depth is, is pretty important. Uh, endpoint protection, identity and access management are necessary, but are not sufficient. There is an entire framework that NIST has developed. Identify, protect, detect, respond, recover. And, and following that framework is a pretty good guideline to making sure your security paradigm is best, uh, well established in the cloud as well. So there's a lot of common ground between the two. And, and I think DevOps can actually help InfoSec by bringing their skills in, in, in rapid automation, in scripting, and InfoSec teams can actually share some of the knowledge with the DevOps teams uh, in, in terms of this NIST cybersecurity framework around identify, protect, detect, respond, and recover. And I think the two can actually learn of each other and, and we can lead to pretty resilient paradigms. Where do you suppose things are headed in, in terms, I mean, it seems to me like to one degree or another, hybrid cloud is here to stay. Um, but what do you see for the future in, in terms of where it's going to go? So I, you're absolutely right. Hybrid cloud is here to stay. Uh, it's, it's an established paradigm and an established model. Uh, I think where we are going over here is in building up the maturity of dealing with the nuances of the hybrid cloud. One of the big things around the cloud, for example, particularly the public cloud, is, is the shared security model, right? Uh, in other words, that uh, if you're moving your applications into the public cloud, the security of those applications is shared between the cloud services provider, where they take care of everything essentially below the hypervisor, and the tenant or the customer is responsible for security essentially above the hypervisor, in other words, the application. But there are cracks in that shared security model. And, and those cracks are now slowly but surely becoming uh, apparent. And people are building the maturity to deal with those cracks and making sure that they can fill those gaps by providing continuous visibility into what's going on with those applications. So I think that's where we are really going, which is building the maturity to deal with the newer paradigms that arise out of this, uh, the hybrid cloud uh, model. That's Shazad Merchant from Gigamon. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute and also my co-host over on the Hacking Humans podcast. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. You know, something you and I discuss uh, all the time over on Hacking Humans is uh, the challenge that lots of people face when it comes to 
resisting the urge to reuse their passwords. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes, indeed. <laughs> it looks like uh, Apple is making a run at this uh, issue. There's an article over on Forbes written by Kate O'Flaherty, mm-hmm. uh, and it's titled Apple to Kill Passwords with Game-Changing New Face ID Move. Right. Uh, that headline may be a little breathless. Yes. But, uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> let's, remember, in- let's remember the reporters don't write the headlines. That's written by an editor. Right. <laughs> uh, right. So it's what's going on is that Apple has now uh, has this system that they demoed at WWDC. They had a session called Move Beyond Passwords. It was a developer session. Uh, and I don't, mm. I don't know. This is anything new, but what it is is it's Apple's keychain product that uses WebAuthN, which is a public-private key way of authenticating to websites. So basically, what this does is it stores your private pass keys in in your iCloud keychain, so they're always accessible to you, no matter what Apple device you're you're using, and. Mm-hmm. The other thing it does is it takes the authentication token out of the hands of the server, right? So if if you think about this from a service provider perspective, uh, right now, if I have a username and a password, I have to store the the password some way on my server, right? And hopefully I'm using salted uh, hashes that can be uh, increased in difficulty over time. But still, I have to have that authentication token on my server. Well, with, with a key base, with a public key, private key situation, I don't have to have any any authentication information, right? I just keep a, a public key on my server, and if that gets breached, no big deal, right? Hmm. I, I just have uh, – the, the public information has been, has been stolen. And the way this works is you, the user, log in to my service, right? I take a, right. a nonce, a number, right? And I, I run it through your public key and I say, here, here's the number, tell me what it is. And you, you, it's, it's called a challenge response, right? And based on your response, I'll know that you have a, the, the private key, right? Uh, right? Because I'll be able to decrypt your response properly. Yeah. And if you can't do that, then I know that you don't have the right private key. Therefore, you're probably not Dave. So I'm not going to authenticate you. This is a, right. a lot better than than passwords, right? And that's what they're doing here with this new feature or that they're trying to get people to adopt uh, is they're securing this with uh, with uh, Face ID and Touch ID. Mm-hmm. So now the user logs in and, and there's a video out there of how easy it is and how transparent it is for the user. And it's a really good job of letting the user authenticate using public-private key cryptography to authenticate right away to a web page. And it's fast, it's easy, the user doesn't have to remember a password. The key is that somebody is remembering the private key, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's where the the concern is. So what what I'm going, here I'm, I'm going to put on my Nostradamus hat now, Dave. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna predict the future here. What's going to happen is more people adopt these kind of um, systems. We're gonna see attackers going after the users to try to get access to these key stores somehow. That's mm-hmm. what's going to happen next. Mm-hmm. That's how this is going. So it's it's going to be important that, p- that companies like Apple do a really good job of protecting those key stores. Um, Apple traditionally has done a very good job with security. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's an interesting thing to think about, right? I mean, do, do I trust uh, Apple and their security team with this key more than I trust 
um, you know, Bob's Discount Pet Supplies website down the street. With a password. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. I'm with you on that. I trust Apple more with the keys, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, than I do Bob's Discount Pet Supply. Uh, and you know yeah. what? Bob's Discount Pet Supply would probably love just to have public keys for everybody. That would be great for them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it's a good solution all around, I think. It's just, it makes the attack more difficult, which is good, but it doesn't make the attacks go away. We're still going to see attacks right. on individuals uh, to try to gain access to individual key stores. Right, right. And and as usual, the, uh, the way that Apple handles these sorts of things, if you are in the Apple ecosystem, this will be very easy for you to use. And if you're not, good day to you, sir. Right. <laughs> right. That's 100% correct. Uh, right. The article right. does point right. out that you can also get the same kind of protection with a YubiKey. Uh, YubiKey mm-hmm. is pretty much the same kind of technology. Uh, it doesn't yeah. store the keys. It kind of generates them on the fly. That's That's okay as well. But, you know, yeah. it, it, there is some some talk in here about uh, biometrics uh, in this article about the biometrics being non-changeable, right? Like if my face ID right, right. is breached or somehow that gets broken, that is, uh, that's kind of tangential to this conversation because really all it's using is face ID and touch ID for is to give you access to your keychain key storage. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think it seems to me that so far, you know, Face ID and Touch ID have both pretty much stood the test of time in terms of being reasonably secure solutions to what they're setting out to do. I would agree. They're they're pretty good. Yeah. 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 As yeah. much as I as much as I rail against biometrics, uh, we haven't really seen an attack that's feasible on these yet. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure, Dave. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.